let's talk about what these ecosystems quote, you know, really need, right? You tell me, what does helping a small business owner to create prosperity for themselves and their family and to create jobs in their community, what does that have to do with a theater filled with capitalists, with rock and roll music and strobe lights, where founders walk across the stage two minutes at a time, putting together on some kind of pitch deck demo day? Like you tell me what those two things have to do with each other. Hey, perfect. Andrew, uh, thank you for joining us. We have Andrew here from GrowthX. Um, before we start this episode, we, you know, we're, we're talking about how, you know, I, I thought you were calling in from the Valley, but you're out of Nashville, out of Tennessee. Yeah. Um, a lot to, die, uh, you know, uh, decompress there about what's going on in California and how people are moving out there. But how are you doing? Doing really well. I mean, I, I think I was a bit ahead of the curve. Um, I moved my family from Palo Alto to Nashville um, almost five years ago. So uh, a lot of people following suit right now, uh, and, and uh, it's, it's an exciting place to be. Um, it really yep. is. It's, um, it's going through some great change. It's always been a great place, and it's just becoming you know, a differently great place now. Yeah, um, definitely. Are you, are you guys dealing with the, the cold snap that's going down, down the states? Pretty, I mean, you know, everything is in context, right? I mean, I'm, I'm working with a lot of startups right now in Western Canada, and it's 40 degrees below zero. So, uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot to complain about. We've got it <laughs> so it's made it a little difficult to drive, but it's really not that bad. This is about as bad as it gets is some ice. Um, and I think this weekend it's supposed to be back in like the high 50s. Yeah. Um, well, I'm pretty sure it's Fahrenheit, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, sorry. To clarify, we're talking Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, when's the cold, like um, Texas and, you know, across the the, 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 the central states started getting yeah. snow. Um, you know, right now it's a terrible situation, but you know, we like Canadians are seeing like, you know, Texans enjoying, uh, being out in the snow and throwing snowballs and like how, like, like how much in wonder they were. And we're laughing about, you know, how, how cute that is because we're here being dumped on all the time and, and, and like hating our lives. But, uh, now things are getting kind of out of control and, um, uh, you know, with, with like, uh, people losing electricity and uh, things like that in Texas. How's that where you are? We haven't had any problems. I mean, the, the severe cold of a couple of days ago, we suffered with a little intermittent uh, internet access. But, you know, again, in the whole scheme of things, you know, sometimes we're grateful when the internet goes down just because our kids, you know, have to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I remember when the, the pandemic was first called and like internet connections were really spotty because like a whole bunch of people from home were suddenly using it and it starts, it starts spiking. And I remember thinking like, wow, like if the internet goes off now, like that's it. Like we're going to riot. Like people are going to lose their minds. Well, you know, we obviously had a terrible thing happen in Nashville uh, right around uh, Christmas when uh, the fellow blew up himself um, in his RV downtown Nashville and it was in front of the AT&T building. Um, and so uh, it the internet, you know, basically went down across the city, as well as for those folks that had AT&T for their cell phone. Um, and so it was, it was a couple of days of no internet. And again, wow. I think a lot of us, you know, obviously being very respectful for the horrific act, 
um, and thank God lots of folks weren't injured or killed, but in some respects, it was kind of this Christmas miracle that we couldn't have internet. It was a horrible mm. thing that happened, but not having internet right around Christmas ended up being a pretty good thing. Families sat at a table, played games, talked to each other. Mm. Not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Was it like a sudden interruption, like the internet just stopped working for most people and then like, we're like what's going on? Yeah, it was pretty quick. Um, and then there was there was a, there was a couple of different types of kind of related events just when that went down. But it was really just the damage, and then and then ha- you know the, the time to repair it. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid in middle school, like um, the the power went off for like a day and a half uh, all across the eastern seaboard, and uh, it was really interesting because people just started like communities that were naturally forming people like took the fr- food out of their fridge started cooking it for their neighbors and started giving it out yeah. everyone was out in the, out on the street yeah. talking to each other You're right some t- younger than i am i wasn't a kid when that happened but yeah i was <laughs> in new york city when that happened of course it had to, it was after 9-11 i was in yeah. new york for 9-11 as well so when the when when new york city went That's dark right. i would square in my office um it you know the first few minutes were pretty scary especially those of us who who literally had some post-traumatic stress from, from 9-11. And it was, again, like 9-11, it was also a gorgeous day. Mm. Um, and I remember it very well, because when everybody realized that there was no terrorist attack, everybody was fine and safe, it was just like a kid at recess. I was a, a lawyer at the time at a very large law firm in New York City, and it was like, all right, everybody, you're free to go. Mm. And like, woohoo! Like, you know, it was like... <laughs> It was recess, but I remember <laughs> very well. Yeah. So speaking of that, I mean, you started off your career as a lawyer, um, generally working with a lot of tech companies. Did you start yeah. off right away? 100% focused on tech. I mean, when I when I came out of law school in the mid to late 90s, you know, I didn't really, obviously, as a first year law uh, lawyer, I, I, you know, I really had no idea how to practice law, especially because I was corporate doing transactions. Law school doesn't really do a great job of setting stuff, setting up if you want to do corporate law. They, they do a great job for getting you ready to do litigation. But certainly when I went through law school, it was really just, you know, on the job training. Didn't really know how to draft contracts, uh, but knew how the Internet worked. Um, and that really separated me out from a lot of lawyers. Well, a lot of people at the time honestly didn't really understand how the Internet technologically worked. And so it just enabled me to build a practice around a subject matter that I was passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, ended up, ended up leaving my first law firm after only a year because they just, they just didn't have enough tech transactions. And all I wanted to do was transaction that involved technology. So I, I joined a, a very large firm in New York City that also has a presence on the West Coast. And I joined a group where 100% of my practice was technology. And at, at the time, it was doing it for big companies, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, working for the early pioneers across many categories on the internet. No, it's, it's really cool. Um, so I, I heard this funny stat, not funny. I mean, it's, it's kind of astounding, actually. It's like Bitcoin right now as a user adoption rate has the same amount of users as the internet did in 1998. 
And that really kind of stuck out to me because now you're talking about adoption curve. You know, we talk about, a lot about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as prices and like these assets and what are they going to be used for. But when you look at adoption curves for any kind of new technology, that's a real cool way of looking at things, right? Because it becomes like a, almost like a network effect. You know, Metcalf's law comes into effect when more and more people join like a network a network thing, like it becomes more and more powerful and becomes more ingrained in society. Yeah, right? I mean, literally a network effect. I mean, it's one of those it's one of those terms you hear thrown about and bandied about among founders all the time about the network effect. I'm like, you don't even know what that means. You, you actually <laughs> have nothing that would literally benefit from the network effect, right? Network mm. effect is not having like a high viral coefficient. Right, the network effect, the best example being the telephone becomes more viable the more people are using the thing. So yeah, I totally agree. And that's a great set. I hadn't heard that and I really like that because I do, I think it speaks to a real concrete example for folks that kind of only look at cryptocurrency in the mainstream media and really understand the application of the technology to the advancement of a society. Um, and not just cryptocurrency, but of course, obviously, you know, the, you know, the underlying technology um, there that that goes into, you know, um, you know, how it works. And, it, you know, for me, I relate it to when I actually first started practicing law, talking about the, you know, the underlying Internet, right, the notion of TCP IP, right, or even frankly, GPS. Right. I mean, think about what would have happened if those things were not, you know, the quote, public commons. Mm. Right. Or when you take a look at what's happening with the blockchain and, of course, cryptocurrency being an element of it, it's opening up this whole new conversation about commons. Right. I mean, take a look at Facebook as an example. Facebook was able to flourish, certainly in part because of a visionary like Mark Zuckerberg, but really because it was something that Vince Cerf and the others that invented the internet just did not address. They didn't address privacy as a protocol. And so rather than being a part of the commons, it's a part of you know, a private enterprise in order to kind of um, address it, right? So not just privacy, but personality and character. And so it's interesting to see what was able to happen because GPS and TCP IP and those things were a public protocol um, and so I think, you know, your example about the adoption of, of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is the same thing with the adoption and the application of, of um, uh, you know, of, of some of the underlying technology that's powering that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, speaking of the parallels, right, like, you know, you saw the early, um, you know, the dot coms and you know, the, second, the first wave, second wave and now the third wave, I guess, of technology, right, uh, the boom of bus cycles, um, you know. Being able to see that through your career, right? How, do you see any parallels to you know what happened to, uh, the, the past iterations of like large spurts of growth in, uh, in in technology? I mean, I think there's I think there's definitely some parallels that can be drawn. I mean, listen, anytime you know there's a it's a pioneering type of thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's no different than and back to the physical pioneering towns. When you know when you know the landmass of the United States or any other country was was being expanded, you know whether it's through you know the the discovery of gold or oil, right? Any type of pioneering, you tend to bring in a variety of personalities. You know, you hear about the folks that are um, you know go you know going for gold and the folks that are selling those folks the pickaxes, right? 
you've got the snake oil salesman, right? You've got the financiers, right? And so I, I think the boom and bust to a certain extent, you know, is, you know, I've never, you know, studied this, but I think, you know, seeing it as it's rolled out from across my career and with a little more perspective to look back and also look forward, you know, I think there are some natural ebbs and flows, especially when it comes to literal pioneering. Um, but I think what's great about the point you made is it's about perspective. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, mainstream media has a purpose that it serves. And frankly, it's what we're interested in consuming, which may not be the kind of the scientific underpinnings or the empirical data about cryptocurrency and their adoption rate. But, you know, something that makes for a little more interesting reading and headlines. But look at that statistic that you just talked about that really puts it into perspective. And I think the perspective is the thing that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look at the look at what's happening with SPACs right now. Yeah. Um, SPACs have been around a very long time. They're just being used for a different purpose right now. And it's just interesting to see for me, like when I was practicing law 20 years ago, you know, a SPAC was something, you know, that was, you know, it was, it was kind of almost the opposite of the way it's used now. You know, you, you were, you know, a SPAC was a negative thing. It was trying Mm -hmm. to get something done in a way that you couldn't because of the underlying assets, but the way that it's being used today, um, you know, is just a very different thing. Um, And I think some of that is, is also, is also powering some of the boom. But I also think that, um, listen, there's always going to be, again, the different personalities in any kind of pioneering town or any kind of pioneering economy is going to be made up of a variety of different, different actors. But I think, you know, what we're also starting to see now, too, is um, there is an opportunity for enduring value and long-term wealth creation, um, you know, through the application of the technology. Yeah, no doubt. But like going back to SPACs and how it's been utilized, right? I love seeing that parallel. So when you when you talk about it being used as a negative, how were SPACs used before and how are they being used now? What do you see? Well, it's just that, you know, SPACs before really were, you know, it's it was kind of, you know, where that you had underlying assets that really, you know, in terms of going public with an underlying asset, they didn't really have the value, right? Um, versus today, you know, marrying this, you know, way to go public in, in some people's view in a much more efficient way and using it as an acquisition vehicle, you know, not for things that wouldn't pass muster otherwise because of the performance of the assets or the lack thereof, just the opposite. It's just a more efficient means, right, to, to, to generate right. Um, capital and create proceeds but the underlying assets are extraordinarily high performing assets, right? So it's now we're going to have to see what happens, right? Because you're talking about the boom and the bust cycle to a SPACs is if there aren't the underlying high performing, high growth assets that can be acquired through the SPACs, I think what, what we're going to see, and it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, who gets hit by this, but again, you come into just a pioneering type of behavior and at what point in the cycle someone gets involved into what purpose, there are a lot of SPACs that are being raised right now. And if they're not able to identify and win the acquisition 
of the underlying asset to which you're going to take public first, you know, through the vehicle, those things are going to go bust. And there's going to be a lot of people that lose their money because there isn't that underlying liquidity unless and until you've got either, you know, the warrants that you're trading off or you've got that underlying asset that after the hold value of a year, you can obviously just sell in a public market like anything else. And so I do think it's going to be interesting. But again, you know, I think providing liquidity, you know, creating that wealth and providing liquidity um, where folks were otherwise ignoring the public markets um, is just a, is a, it's an interesting conversation in its own right with respect to the impact that that's had on venture capital because it's elongated it. Right. And I think what happens in what's been happening lately in venture capital is without the, you know, the public market, right. With liquidity left to acquisition, I think it's just changed the, the you know, the expectation and the behavior of, of the asset class at the same time as you're seeing such an enormous amount of capital go into the asset class, um, you know, relative to what it used to be at the same time, as we are now firmly entrenched in the age of applied technology. And to me, that's some of the more interesting and exciting part is this notion of applied technology versus developed technology. You know, when, when Mark Andreessen talks about software eating the world, right? This is what he's referring to. The fact that it's so much relatively cheaper and easier to build technology now than it was 20 years ago. And so many more people have the ability um, and the training to develop technology than relative to 20 years ago. Really right now, it's about the application of that technology and how the application of the technology, again, back to your point, and whether it's Bitcoin or fr frankly, you know, if Elon's concerned, you know, Dogecoins, <laughs> um, it's about the application of that technology. Yeah, and yeah. We're, where we're seeing right now is we really are firmly entrenched in this age of applied technology because so many more people know how to develop and, 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 and build the technology. And it takes so much less capital and so much less intensity to develop the technology, generally speaking. No, again, not really referring to colonizing Mars or curing COVID. Talking about a lot of what we see in entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world now is pre-existing technology being applied you know, to a different use case. That's also had an impact on the venture capital asset class and the way these entrepreneurial ecosystems are being built around the world. Um, because at the end of the day, at the earliest stages of finance, it's no longer prototype, it's product market fit. Hmm. One, uh, one of the interesting things like I, I, I learned in my own entrepreneurial background is how money works, right? Is how how do VCs come in? Where do they? What is the interplay there, right? Because as as like a founder, especially as, as a young founder, it's it's very confusing to have to navigate so many unknowns, right? You you have to you know you you're building up the business that you're building, you're building a product, you're trying to run and lead people. Sometimes in industries or sometimes like in fields that you don't really know that well, uh, you know you have these in in company um, uh, uh, unknowns, right? Which is like running and operating what you're doing. Then you have the externalities, right? Like one of the one of the things that blows me away is like how a lot of how entrepreneurs are just naturally meant to know how to run a co corporation, how taxes work, how to you know how to how to how to how to make sure this has been been operated. What, what's I mean, that? Let's just be clear how to go to market. How to go to market, right? 
number one reason why. What's the leading cause of death among early stage founders inside of the company? It's, you know, building something that nobody wants. Mm. If you're not teaching that, right? I mean, where you live, how far do you have to wander physically to bump into a product development boot camp? Not very far, yep. but you wander for days and you'll never bump into a market development boot camp. Hmm. Or what about the local colleges and universities in your country? How many of them have computer science degrees? Lots, most, maybe all. How many of them have sales degrees? I mm. bet you none. In fact, I would challenge you to go find a single course on sales, right? Where's the Heroku of BizDev? You know, where's the GitHub of sales? Where's the Ruby on Rails of market development? They, they don't exist. Everything is go to product, nothing's go to market. So it's no reason why, right? Founders are failing for what's essentially the equivalent of the common cold. Mm -hmm. Just not, we're not enabling and we're not teaching. And you talk about financial literacy. That's true as well. Go into nascent startup ecosystems. I mean, at the end of the day, entrepreneur is nothing other than a fancy name for a small business owner. Let's just call it for what it is. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what these ecosystems quote, you know, really need, right? You tell me. What does helping a small business owner to create prosperity for themselves and their family and to create jobs in their community, what does that have to do with a theater filled with capitalists, with rock and roll music and strobe lights, where founders walk across the stage two minutes at a time, putting together on some kind of pitch deck demo day? <laughs> Like you tell me what those two things have to do with each other. Mm. So, you know, I think you, you know, the things that you're talking about, you're right. Why should someone who is, again, what's an entrepreneur, right? To me, I define entrepreneur as anyone who wants to work in their store and not your store. That's an entrepreneur, mm. right? What does, why is that person supposed to buy osmosis? understand the things that we're talking about here and it's the education system that's failing them right it's also the startup ecosystems that are failing them I and mean, what is the number one educator of startup founders in the world it's the accelerator network right there are thousands of startup accelerators around the world today mm -hmm. but let's just be honest where are they focused they're focused on helping founders raise money they're not helping them make money Hmm. Investor readiness is not about teaching someone to talk to a venture capitalist. Investor readiness is the natural byproduct of customers and sales. But if you don't have a structure, if you don't have a framework, if you don't have a curriculum, if you're not actually enabling founders to understand every step to take to go to market, and all you're doing is showing them how to speak with a capitalist. I just don't understand how you can expect a different outcome. I mean, let's just be clear. The best people to raise money from are your customers. They don't ask for equity. They don't take board seats. They just want you to help them. Yeah. Like all of these fundamental things need to change for mm -hmm. the outcomes to change. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking to um, another person on the podcast about this, right? Like how there's like a duality when it comes to entrepreneurship. There are two types generally, right? There are the, the sales-focused individuals and then there are the builders, right? The sales-focused, you know, they can have a scrappy product 
they can go and sell it, get pre-sales, all the stuff, and then get fulfillment afterwards. And they build the parachute after they jump out of the sh uh, jump out of the plane, right? But in tech, uh, tech is full of you know the engineering types who uh, are the builders, right? They they work operate on a if you build it, they will come kind of uh, aspect. And we're we're you know we have we're blasted with all the content of like all the ones have done it. They built something and and drove you know they built the Facebooks of the world, the Googles, right? They have all the success. But like that's at the tip of the iceberg. Underneath them is a bunch of companies, a bunch of tools that have been built and didn't go anywhere, right? And there's kind of this interplay between the two of them, right? It's like you build and you sell, you sell and you build and go back and forth. And one of the one of the best uh, advices I think that still exists out there is that you generally want to have a company of two or three founders where you have a variety of skill sets where one is a builder, one is a salesperson, right? Or like at least a, it's a mix between there because like, you got to do both almost the same time, right? Like, on, on like from your perspective, right? I mean, you probably seen this a lot, like from what you're saying, all right? Companies that look really good on paper, who, who you can bring a come, you know, bring forward a deal, can pitch you as, as an investor, saying, you know, you know, we have the team, we have everything, but if they don't have the sales and tractions, right? I mean, it, it's kind of a lopsided business, right? So this is kind of the, the, the flack that I guess the industry gets is that you pump up a lot of companies that just look good. You know, they have a great team. They have a great product that looks good, that functions good. But then now they have to suddenly start growing and they pump money at the problem, right? Well, uh, I, think, I mean, I think you're right, Lixon. I, I, I often see that, you know, founders are trying to raise capital, but they don't have problems money can solve. Mm. Right. I mean, that 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 that's a common thing that I see. And I and I and I agree with your assessment. Listen, at the end of the day, you know, it's not dog food until I see a dog eating it. And only then mm. is it become dog food. Yeah, right. And so I think what's really interesting is a startup. Right. We also define that. Right. Which is it's just a, a you know, experiment in search of a business model. It's what we call a functioning learning organization. Right. It's not really about sales. It's about mm. learning and helping. That's why when people ask us what's the number one thing we look for when making an investment is that, you know, we were uncovering learn-it-alls. They behave very differently than know-it-alls. Hmm. Right? And what, what, are, what the best founding teams are is a group of know-it-alls, or excuse me, a group of learn-it-alls. And it's not necessarily, you're not, talk, you know, you're not hearing me talk about their underlying skill sets. You're not hearing me talk about whether or where they went to college. This is a set of behaviors and a characteristics, the insatiable curiosity for learning, you know, the appetite for risk, right? Um, the ability to deal with uncertainty. I mean, one of the most difficult things about being an entrepreneur is there's no answer key. Hmm. That's an inherently uncomfortable state of being, which is why I think most people don't opt into being entrepreneurs. And so really, when you're talking about sales, it really is just about the insatiable curiosity and the empathy for the people you're trying to serve and the problems you're trying to solve. It will at some point come back to what you do, but it all starts with what you do for your customers. And again, that, that's got to be curiosity. That's got to be patience. That's got to be, you know, um, you know, a learning mentality. And, it's, and it just has to be a lot of empathy. And so, you know, it's, again, it goes back to having a structure and a framework and a system to follow to do the thing you're doing. If I came to your town, having never been there before, 
and you said, Andrew, go to this place, and you didn't give me a map, and I didn't have directions, what would happen? I would waste an enormous amount of time getting there. I probably would never make it. Well, when I say to a founder, go to market, that's exactly what I'm doing. Or if I tell a founder, go find something, but I don't describe what you're looking for, that's the same thing when I say, go find product market fit. Mm. And there's a lot of wisdom bombs in blogs, right? There's certainly a lot of online conferences and books to learn how certain people went from two customers to 200 customers in two years. But when I sit back down at my desk to do the work of entrepreneuring, and I'm trying to develop my market, not my product, I literally don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do. Nobody has taught me. Nobody has showed me. Nobody has empowered me. And, and, and even me, a quote, non-technical founder, I can get the product pretty damn quickly and pretty damn cheaply, right? Low code, no code, you know, software frameworks, you know, even if I don't have a co-founder, I could find someone to help me out. Like is, as far as the product that I need to sufficiently test my hypothesis about the problem I perceive my market is having, I can get there, Yeah. right? Most of the time I can get there, right? But not true with market. Um, and so you have a lot of time and money wasted with people that are wandering the desert rather than just being given the directions. I, I like the assessment you made of like companies, successful companies, or at least the ones you look for are not know-it-alls, but learn-it-alls, right? So this idea of like, explore, like you know, the startup exploration vehicles, I, I really like that assessment because that's, I think that's, that's the most accurate, uh, you know, short-term kind of prefix I've heard. Uh, a description of startups. What does that look like for you? Like, how do you how do you access a company? You know, if they're learn it all, like, what are that? What are the heuristics? You know what? It's it really comes down through a conversation. I'm a firm believer in the notion that everything communicates. Mm. Right. The corollary, of course, is you can't not communicate. But you know, everything communicates, and so you send out invitations and you kind of wait for the RSVPs, right? So when we speak with founders, when I'm talking with them, it's not challenging them. It's not showing them how smart I am. It's not trying to stump them. It's just having a conversation where I'm enabling them to share with me in subtle and unsubtle ways, you know, whether they're a learn it all or whether they're a know it all. When we ask questions, how do they respond? Right? Do they get defensive? Does it ha does every point have to be argued? When they when they posit something, is it something that they know? Is it something that they believe? Is it something that they feel? Or do they have a hypothesis? Right? Are they willing to admit they don't know? Right? Are they are they coming with their ego first? Hmm. Or are they really just oriented towards winning? Right. For me, our goal, each of us as people and members of the race are to be less wrong tomorrow than we are today. Like that should be our goal. And so through the conversation, we learn these things. So is the founder telling me about how much MRR they have? Or are they telling me about what they learned along the journey to that MRR? Right. Are they telling me about, you know, where they are today 
and what they plan to do tomorrow? Or are they telling me about the journey and what they've learned and the mistakes they've made, right? And the things they did to learn the things and why they're doing the things they're doing today. Are they willing, to, are they able to express to me what is the underlying logic and thought process behind what it is that they're trying to do? Because therein lies the challenge, therein lies the execution risk, therein lies the opportunity. You know, if I said to you, how much does a, uh, a 787 way, a Dreamliner, you know, unless you're an AV expert, right? Like, you know, you have no idea, right? But like, when we, when we talk with founders, it's not so much that we're looking for the right answer to that question. It's what I wanna see is how do you answer the question? So the the great founder, right? So the the the, the know-it-all says that's a stupid question. <laughs> comes up with a thousand reasons why it's not relevant and wants to get back on topic. The learn-it-all sits there and says, well, I don't know, but let me tell you about how I go about it, right? It probably has two engines uh, and the engines each weigh a ton. Yep. And it has a hundred rows. Each row has eight seats and each seat weighs a hundred pounds, right? Every one of those numbers may be off by an order of magnitude, but so what, right? Hearing them puzzle it through, see, see what resources do they have at their fingertips to think about and to generate? And are they willing to just kind of think out loud based on their intelligence, their intellect, their intuition, their resources, their relationships, their experiences, those things wrapped together is where hypotheses come from. And so really in short to your question, I'm trying to see how closely they mirror the activities and the behavior of a scientist walking into a laboratory, right? That scientist doesn't throw some shit in a Petri dish and stand hmm. back and say, huh, what's going on? No, yeah. by the way, the scientist does not walk into a laboratory looking to prove themselves right. They're seeking the truth. And so in interacting with founders and just enabling a good human conversation, if you understand that everything communicates and you're trained to kind of pick up those signals, you really can begin to get a sense of whether someone kind of generally speaking behaves as what we call that learn it all versus someone who is a know it all. That's that's really interesting. I like uh, I like how you brought the aspect of science into it, almost like a scientific expedition, right? Because one of the one of the trainings, like if you like, you know, if anyone taking like a like some science electives or even a, a science background, um, is that you know you're almost classically trained to like break down a problem into like a into like a you know hypothesis and figure out how to solve it or um, you know like how how to prove it right or prove it wrong. And what are the conditions for that? And it's more of a scientific like like expedition, right? So it's funny. I actually literally literally had this discussion with my team yesterday about this. Like, how do we break down our problems into smaller problems, and how do we test them, and how do we like how do we like you know methodically go through these problem sets, and then also record it so that we don't go end up in the future going back and trying to like you know solve this in a different way or things like that. We have a reference point, and I was like, holy. This is this is science. I mean, this is like literally like experimentation that I used to hate doing back in the day. <laughs> right, and that's so great you did that. I mean, it's it's called being a business scientist, mm. right? Even neuroscientifically, this has been proven that when you use the word hypothesis, 
I hypothesize. My hypothesis is the following versus I think, I feel, I know. Neuroscientifically, you're activating your prefrontal cortex in a way that enables you to puzzle through and solve things in a way that your lazy part of your brain isn't as effective at doing. Your lazy part of the brain tends to, to succumb to the, the, the allure and the romance of a narrative, which kind of is a shiny objects to the facts and the scientific approach. And so having a hypothesis and saying, listen, this is what I know. And this is, you know, I, I have a lot, I spent a lot of time working with founders, helping them understand venture as an asset class and how it behaves. And, and if you're interested in raising venture, you must understand what it is and how it behaves to make sure that you want it before you decide to go get it. And if you do decide to go get it, how the right way it is to go about doing that, right? A pitch deck has a purpose. I make fun of them, but it has a purpose because it forces the founder to put together a narrative. And again, mm -hmm. it communicates. So when I get a pitch deck from a founder, what that founder is doing is saying, Andrew, here are the things that I believe are the most important. Right. And I can already start to get into the mind of the founder and determine whether that execution risk is one that I want to take. I don't even need to know the product. Right. But, but more than that, it's really just a conversation with your partner. Right. So when we, when we talk with founders, what we invite them to just kind of set aside the pitch deck, relax, you know, let's just have a conversation. We are equals. Right. I will promise not to use terms that are meant purposely to obfuscate the truth so I can heap power over you, right? And I will not transactionalize you. If you don't transactionalize me, let's just have a conversation. Explain to me, first of all, like who you are, where you come from. You're a smart, capable person with options. Why is it you're doing this thing? And how is it that there's this miracle team that you've put together of people who are able and available and interested to, together to do the thing you're doing and talk about it just in plain humanistic terms and talk about just where you are right now. Don't pretend to be somewhere you're not. And by all means, don't make excuses and don't apologize. You are where you are. The right partner is going to want to join you at that place in the journey if it's a good fit. And just talk about what led you to here. What have you done so far? What have you learned? What would you do differently? Based on all those things, what are you thinking you want to be doing next? And why is that? Mm -hmm. And just like your answer to the 787, you're probably going to be wrong, right? It's probably not going to be that thing you think it's going to. But the question is the, the framework, the thought process, and how you're going about executing it, which is really all about founder judgment and conviction. Um, it's just that kind of, it's, it's really just that basic conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the things that really stands about the VC world, right? Like that as an outsider, you get surprised. It's like how much of it is humanistic, right? It's based off of relationships and how, like, you know, how you can convey trust. Um, and part of that is like having these kind of conversations, right? Um, one, of the, one of the issues also, conversely, is how these uh, sometimes get hacked, right? One of um, those guests who came on our show uh, very early on, and he spoke about like, you know, he's a young, he's, he's himself is a, uh, you know, he's young, he joined a startup and he's an accountant CFA by, by trade, CPA by trade. And he, he came in as, as a chief financial officer and he was going out raising money for this uh, startup that he thought was phenomenal, had great IP, great team. 
and he he's out for lunch uh, at a high end restaurant with like two uh, two VCs, and uh, so randomly they saw another company that they they pitched them like in the, their 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 founder came by said uh, said hi and everyone talked, anyway. The other founder ended up walking to the bar and ended up uh, scoring uh, a girl's number, right? And then the two VCs looked at each other and it's like, this guy can get girls. That means he must be able to get sales. And two, at the very least, if we fund him, he'll throw some great parties. And um, the, the account was listening, like, what the heck's going on? And they did themselves converse. It's like, yeah, let's fund this guy. And he oversaw this and he's like, wait, 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 wait. It's like I constructed all of these financial documents. I constructed all of these like arguments about metrics and things to move forward. But like, like this is the back end side of things, right? Like people are still human at the end of the day, making humanistic choices and things going forward. But same time, this is one of the like, this is like the back and forth that we see in like the VC world, right? One, it's like, uh, it's like um, you know, VCs are, you know care about metrics and you know they want to uh, you know sit down with you unless you have these things set up. But in the back end, you also want to you know have, hit this human uh, these human uh, levels to it. But those human levels could be like uh, human elements to it could be hacked and like you know can be kind of turned into like a, a into a, almost a negative kind of spin to it, right? Create a toxic culture, a kind of kind of like, kind of like a um, the in groups and out groups versus kind of kind of mentalities. So like. How do you fight that? Because, like, well, we've seen a lot. There's, there's so much I could comment on about the behavior of those, those venture capitalists. You know, it's just bad behavior. You know, mm. one of the reasons that the, the profession is plagued, you know, with a reputation, the bro culture, um, yeah. that, you know, it has, it has long richly deserved. Um, and so, you know, and that's, you know, just, you know, that's not even a conscious bias. I mean, that's just mm. flat out bad Cro-Magnon behavior that I just think there's a zero tolerance for. But the, the, the challenge is it's not, it's, it's, it's a bigger ecosystem, right? And, mm. and the founders have to be a part of the solution. The general partners who run the funds have to be a part of the solution. But the limited partners the institutional investors that are giving those two VCs the money to spend on the startup must also be a part of the solution. Otherwise they're part of the problem. And that bro culture is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. I think another part of the conversation though, um, which frankly is a little more interesting to me because frankly, the excuse, the, the, the example you use to me is just black and white. It's bad behavior. And I have just simply no tolerance for it, no interest for it, period. Mm the unconscious bias rather the mm. subconscious bias to me that's a conversation that's a little more rich and in depth and worth talking about and 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 also very very real and you know i think for us you know one of the ways that we're trying to we, there's a couple of things that we do to try to combat our subconscious bias the first thing is I've been blessed as a Kaufman fellow to be exposed to good professional training, to recognize and understand what it is, to appreciate the fact that I'm a human being and I have it. And so I need to be constantly diligent and aware of it. I need to create situations so that people who share those spaces with me feel safe enough to call me on it when I am behaving as a fallible human being and potentially the subconscious bias is creeping into my decision-making and maybe even some of the ways I'm communicating, right? So that's, that's important. Mm -hmm. The 
are some of the physical and tangible things that we can do as a fund that we've always done that I think has had some good results? One, we don't go and hide in a building and close the doors and on every Monday sit in a private boardroom and among our partners sit and make decisions about the founders that we've met. Um, we actually invite the founders into that room to participate in the decision-making process because we don't think we're going to say anything that we're going to be ashamed of. And if we are, we should be called on it. Mm. Because again, I don't think we're cavemen, but I think like any fallible human being, there's going to be that opportunity to have that subconscious bias. And we want someone there checking that behavior. And our, one of our core values is transparency. So we just make investment decisions in front of the founders and talk about them like they're not in the room with us. And if they need to call us on it, they can. And, and again, it's on us to create an environment that they feel comfortable and we've earned the opportunity to hear their truth based on what they're seeing from us. Hmm. The other thing I think we've done, and again, I have absolutely no empirical evidence to back this up, but something that we've been thinking about a lot lately as maybe one of the reasons why we have a more diverse portfolio than most funds in this world is because of our geeky focus on go-to-market. Hmm. Um, Village Capital did a study many years ago. And Village Capital is an amazing organization doing so much to just improve the profession and create real entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world. They did a study several years ago, and one of the recommendations that they came to based on what they found was one of the challenges with venture and creating a more uh, um, realistic and robust and diverse uh, community is there isn't a common language. There aren't firm things to point to. So I think the example um, that they used in this report was the sports scout that goes out and is just looking for very, very specific types of behavior, very specific types of athletic abilities that have a very specific language around them and a set of metrics around them. So that when you're looking at humans and comparing humans and saying which human is better and which human do we want and which human do we not want, it's, it's, it's a, at least harder for the subconscious bias to, to leak in because you're talking about weight and height and speed and all sorts of things. But in venture, we don't have that, do we? We don't even have a mm. company. And so what happens in those closed rooms, on those fancy roads and the fancy buildings and the fancy boardrooms with mostly white, room, white men sitting around? You hear things like, you know, I just don't think she was as passionate <laughs> as she should have been about this yeah. when the reality is men behave very differently than women men are so much more comfortable being over the top and aggressive yeah. and, and 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 fit and like even physically being a part of that machismo conversation than than gender stereotypically a female would be and so what you hear is she just didn't really seem to be i don't know as into it as she should be, didn't have that founder hunger that we're mm. looking for, right? Um, or other types of um, subconscious bias because of a behavior that we can't relate to, 
Um, not, not a personality type we're used to hanging around with, didn't grow up with it, don't have that shared experience, right? I think one of the things that's helped us, and we never planned this, is because we're just such geeks about go-to-market, and we, we focus all of our time, really the substantive conversation, the non-relational part of what we talk about with founders, it's just like hardcore, bottom-up, go-to-market geeky stuff where we do have a common language and we do have a framework and we do have a standard and we do have a benchmark, you know? And so it's the same thing like when you're talking with someone about how they're developing their product and you can have a really good, robust conversation among developers that the, the, the subconscious bias will not leak in because there's an engineering element to the conversation. There still may be some gender stereotypical behaviors that are going on between men and women or between people of different races and so forth. But the, the actual substance of the conversation has a framework and a language for there to be room for a agreement and disagreement. But that doesn't exist on the market side. And so I think one of the reasons that, you know, over 30 percent of our first fund is female founders and currently 75% of our second fund are people of color is not because we purposefully set out to do that or made a commitment to our limited partners that we would do that. We just think it's a smart thing to do period because mm. diversity breeds better performance period. But I think it's also because the interactions we tend to have substantively with founders are just right to the heart of that geeky matter on go to market, which just creates that common language and somewhat removes the opportunity for the subconscious bias. Yeah. I mean, that's really commendable. It's really cool uh, to know that, but you know, going more into like the mechanics of how you operate, like, you know, more funds are now being pushed to do, uh, to offer more than just capital, right? Uh, they started first with advisory services, but now some of them get their hands dirty and just and do some of the work themselves. Uh, do you find yourself uh, moving in that direction? Oh, we were founded with that DNA. I mean, that, that's that's why the firm is called Growthex and not Goldner, you know, <laughs> or Bunker, right? Yeah. You know, my founders, my co-founders. It's it's because we call ourselves Growthex because we are all experts at bringing innovation to market. And we felt like the right place to create a culture of helping and sales and not just product building and features and functions was venture capital, because that also can create a better, different, more able venture capital fund. And so we really started out as a consulting firm inside of a venture capital fund. You know, mm -hmm. from our inception in 2015, we've operated our market acceleration program you know, which we refer to as the Google Maps of go to market. And it as and, 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 and you know, it behaved since 2015 as a team of people inside of our fund that were experts at go to market. Um, and we hid that help behind our check, because that's how we wanted to, uh, um, to attract the best types of founders that we were wanted to work with. Ironically, we were not and are not looking for perfect teams. We are actually looking for founding teams that recognize the need and want help going to market because they don't have it all figured out. Hmm. They are learn it alls. 
that's where we become a great partner for them. We did not want to be just fungible currency, right? My dollar is the same as a Rockefeller dollar. They have a whole lot more of them, but my dollar is the same as theirs, mm. right? And so how could we differentiate? And not to get too much into the geeky weeds of it, but we also didn't want to do it necessarily the same way as Andreessen did that invented the venture platform. My hat's off to them and I have a lot of respect for what they've done and what they're doing. We just didn't want to do it with an assets under management business model. We feel that one of the problems that plaguing, plaguing early stage venture right now is there are too many assets under management at the early stage. But when the business model that underpins venture capital is premised upon how much assets you have under management, well, you can't blame the general partners for going and getting a lot of assets under management because mm -hmm. their operating income is 2% of their assets under management. And we just think that creates a lot of perversity in the system. We think that begins to misalign the incentives between founder and funder. And, and so we purposefully created a business model and venture where the general partners have the operating income to be deeply engaged and helpful to our founders without it being the product of 2% times assets under management. And so unlike a lot of different venture capital funds in this world, me and my partners actually start and run profitable businesses inside of our venture capital fund mm. that help supplement our operating income, which we're not getting from assets under management. As a sub $50 million fund, we wouldn't have nearly enough operating income to be able to afford the team and afford the activities. And so again, because we opted out of the problem, and, and selected into the solution, we decided that we were going to have to come up with a different type of business model. And oh, by the way, yeah, I mean, it helps make us quite empathetic because when we're getting pitched by founders, we're not like, oh, we used to be founders too and we exited now we're funders. No, we're in the grind with you. We actually run profitable startups inside of our fund. So we know what you're going through because we're going through it right now at the same time. And again, everything for us is around the expertise at go to market. And mm -hmm. so we've been heavily involved and heavily engaged since day one. Our market acceleration program is not cohorts one on one, and there's no fixed period of time. We work with our founders who are in our portfolio for as long as it takes. And by mm -hmm. the way, we never promise product market fit. That would be wrong and false. But what we do promise, and we've, we've always achieved it, is the truth. And the best founders are in search of the truth. Mm. Of course, you hope that the outcome is product market fit, but what you ought to be searching for is the truth. And it was yeah. really only a couple of years ago when um, one of my co-founders and I, Max Mankey, decided that we wanted to scale the amount of founders that we could help in this world and not become Accenture, right? We're not interested in having thousands of people in offices. And so, you know, it just, the irony occurred to us one day that if GrowthX pitched GrowthX, we'd pass. <laughs> and so we built a, a SaaS version um, of our market acceleration program 
so that we can, through force multiplication, um, help a significant amount of additional founders around the world. And in the process, that's how we earn our deal flow, right? This is the only form of legal insider trading in America. That's what we do. Help is our due diligence. So now when founders in Beirut or Cairo or Kuala Lumpur or Korea or Cincinnati, right, are using our program, it's a little digital window for us to peer through and see is the founder a know-it-all or a learn-it-all? Do mm. they have good market instinct? Are they following the structure? Are they following the program? Are they making market a priority? And how is the market reacting? So, you know, what Mark Benioff did to on-premise software, we're doing to the pitch deck and demo day. That's really cool. That's Thank really you. cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, like, is this a tool and is this offering meant for any type of startups? Is there a, is there a focus you have? Is it fintech companies, SaaS companies, like... Yeah, no, we, we're industry and sector agnostic and we always have been because we started out with a hypothesis that we think now we've proven, which is that products and markets may be unique, but the path to finding product market fit is not. It's a formula. Mm -hmm. Every single company in the world, whether big or small, that's looking to bring innovation to market will take the exact same steps to do that, regardless of their product, regardless of their market. Right. And it's not about the stage of the company. It's about the stage of the product. So mm -hmm. it's equally true for two kids in a garage in the Fortune 200. If you're bringing something disruptive to market, going to market follows the same exact set of steps. Now, if you're doing something that's more capitally intense or if you're doing something, let's say, has a heavily regulatory aspect to it, when you go to market and the elongation of the activities may change, but you're still going to take the exact same steps. Um, and so we're serving, you know, startups of all kind. And again, you know, startup is just a fancy word for small business owner. And so what we're talking about is helping small business owners to create prosperity and to fuel the economy and create jobs by spending less time and less money by being more intentional about how they commercialize their product or service simply by teaching and enabling them to do it in the same ways we've teached and enabled, taught and enabled folks to go to product. It's really just that same thing, creating an engineering approach to go to market. Cool. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. Like, do you, do you have, uh, do you have like, uh, um, a, I guess, size of a company go for seed level companies, pre-seed, um, series A? Right. When you're talking about our fund, right, we're currently investing in post-revenue, highly scalable, capitally efficient. That's our thesis. Yeah. Now, a lot of the times that means B2B SaaS. Yeah. It doesn't have to, but if you think about B2B SaaS, I mean, that's the most capitally efficient, highly scalable opportunity there is right now. Mm -hmm. Post-revenue. We try not to say seed or pre-seed, right, because what pre-seed means in Ontario versus Alberta, versus San Francisco, versus Cincinnati, versus Kuala Lumpur, it's extremely different. Again, not an engineering approach. Yep. Engineering, if you use a term in New Delhi, and you use that same term in New Brunswick, and you use that same term in New York, it means the same thing. Not true in, in venture. And so I like to joke that A is now the fifth letter of the alphabet in venture capital. And so we like, we just talk about post revenue and in some mm -hmm. towns that 
we see and sometimes that's series a yeah yeah but that's just what we invest in um in terms of our market acceleration program and mxp online it really doesn't matter we have a very strong belief that revenue can be the leading false positive on product market fit you we, we constantly see founders yeah. and even venture capitalists equating revenue mm. with a stage in growth right series a being product market fit scalable a problem money can solve time for your vp of sales have the sales playbook right but it's not about the million of arr you have right or any of the other saas metrics that matter if you're doing a saas company it's about being intimate with that revenue right so product market fit is another term that silicon valley throws around and hasn't defined we have right to us product market fit is doing a known right series of activities a predictable known set of activities resulting in a predictable known set of results right you now have something that is scalable right and so um we're working with companies um across the board uh not just you know frankly we work with large public corporations that are trying to harness and commercialize innovation right um because listen in a world in which you know if software is eating the world i'd rather be the predator than the prey <laughs> that's what we tell the corporation but equally too with the startups that we work with it's not about how much revenue you have right it's about how intimate you are with that revenue and can you complete a fairly predictable known set of activities and find basically the same result occurring right that to us is where you have product market fit um even if it's in a hyper sub segment of your total addressable market which is really where you should be starting with anyway um if you're a founder and the periodic table of elements was equivalent to your total addressable market we say that where you should start is by discovering and defining the subatomic particle of one of those elements where you have the highest likelihood of winning the highest amount of revenue and then just focus on that right mm -hmm. um rather than trying to go after that total addressable market so um you know we you know our mark mxp online is pre-product market fit if in your town if that series a then so be it but it's pre-product market fit and the point of it is to get you to the truth about whether and where your product or service fits in a market and how to accelerate the process towards profitable growth. That's really cool. Andrew, one of the things I I really I really get from you is like you speak not just as a lawyer but as an engineer, as a scientist and as a capitalist. You know, you have this well-rounded way of like looking at things from different lenses. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like I I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here with you and I I appreciate that. I you know, I'm a I'm a heavy reader. Mm. Oh, and I think that's, you know, people ask me, you know, people, you know, pay me that compliment. I'm always grateful for that. I I think it's I think it's because of how much I've read in my life. Um and 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 that's just, you know, I I've, I've been able to pick up some of that and also I've been blessed to be exposed to those different types of professions and I, I like to lean in right i you know it's one of the mm. things i love about the internet 
I spend my time, you know, Smarter Every Day is one of my favorite, you know, web series on YouTube. I'm a huge supporter of Destin. Um, and he, he breaks down highly complex engineering um, uh, terminology and concepts. So some like me can understand them and then apply them to my everyday. Uh, Commander Hadfield, obviously one of Canada's greatest assets to me, one of the world's greatest people. Um, the former commander of the ISS wrote mm -hmm. a book called The Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. It's the exact concept where Commander Hadfield broke down the intense things he was he necessarily needed to know and perfect to do what he did in science and in space and took those lessons and applied them to how to be a better person, how to be a better human, how to be a better father, how to be a better brother, a better friend, a better boss um, here on Earth. And so something that I always try to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's important to be well-rounded. It's important to be well-read. Um, and one of the things I enjoy is with podcasts is now it's easy than ever to like consume information. Yeah. Right. It is. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Audible.com, right? Mm -hmm. Smarter Every Day, one of their sponsors, Audible.com. It's amazing. All the, you know, if you have an insatiable curiosity for learning, it's amazing how much you can consume and learn. Uh, listening to that this podcast um or you know i think that's why clubhouse and some of these things are really starting to take off the spoken word um i think is an it's a it's an interesting and it's an interesting way to to uh to get smarter every day that's for sure definitely so we'll cut it off here um andrew i hope we can get you back on in the future because i feel like there's still so many things i wanted to have you have discussed with you and we can probably get into that into a future episode but uh for now today thank you so much for joining us and for everyone who tuned in yeah thank you very much for the opportunity